of Psalms, and we'll read verses 15 and 16. Psalms 89, verses 15 and 16. And it reads as follows. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. As you can see, we are continuing uh, soon to end our walk through the Psalms as we head into our Advent season. So I just want to look at these two verses, but before uh, we look at the verses, I want to offer four overarching observations that should help us, or I should say four preliminary observations before we focus in on uh, the verses that are before us. And that, that's in, in terms of understanding the Old Testament versus the New Testament expression of our faith. So here's the first preliminary observation. Old Testament saints are saved by, uh, by faith in the same gospel that we are. We have to make sure we understand that, that Old Testament saints are saved by the same, by faith in the same gospel that we are. So whether it's David, whether it's Paul, whether it's, whether it's, it's, it's uh, any of the Old Testament saints or any of the New Testament saints, they are saved by faith in the same gospel that we believe. Now, ultimately, the gospel is God's promise to save through the person and work of his son. So they believed in the same promise that we believe. The second preliminary observation is this. The substance of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus does, is not born until we get to the, uh, the New Testament. But the promise of Jesus begins in Genesis 3.15. So therefore, the promise is what... Is, is what they were looking to by faith. And the, and the substance is Christ. But the, the substance of the promise is, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, we can say that all of the Old Testament saints, from Abraham to David to all of the prophets and all of those who look by faith to the promise, were saved by faith in Jesus Christ. They did not know him. They didn't see his face. They didn't have the history of where he would come from. There was much they did not understand, but they knew that God promised to save through a person. And the person that God promised to save or to save us through is Jesus Christ. So whether it's the ceremonies, whether it's the sacrifices, by exercising these things, they are demonstrating their faith in that promise. But the substance of all that the Old Testament saints believed in is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the rituals and the ceremonies contained in the Mosaic law were types and shadows of the coming or, or of the person and work of Christ. So all of the ceremonies, all of the rituals, there, were, there was no power and efficacy in the act itself, only as it illustrated, demonstrated, 
or point it to the person and work of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews takes it a step further and indicates that even the furniture and the structure of the tabernacle itself pointed to some aspect of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the rituals and ceremonies, the Old Testament saints were not saved by animal sacrifices, but they were saved by understanding that the animal sacrifices pointed to the person and work of Christ. And they also understood through this, these physical and tangible things, they understood that, that these manifested a greater reality. And so what we get in the New Testament is they have taken that which is established uh, in the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices, and they have interpreted them through the lens of the person and work of Christ. No one is saved by going to a temple. But the temple itself points to the person of Christ who tabernacled with us and faith in him is the means by which we are saved. So, they, and, and granted, there were some Old Testament uh, people, not necessarily believers, that were were just as superstitious and therefore lost as many people are who, looking, who are looking outside of Christ for salvation. There were some who were confused that thought that, and, and thought that by doing A, they were somehow um, working something in God, not realizing that everything that is, uh, that is presented to them points to the person and work of Christ. So therefore, the Old Testament saints, through the rituals and the ceremonies that were contained in the Mosaic Law, uh, they, un they, they didn't understand the full, how this would be revealed, but they understood there is a promise that is manifest or that is attached to these rituals and these ceremonies. And David is a good example of that in many of his psalms. But here's the fourth overarching or preliminary observation. Therefore, Old Testament saints, because they had primarily the word of God and the rituals and the ceremonies of the Mosaic law, they tended to express their faith in the gospel in terms of God's physical acts on their behalf, which we'll see in a moment, and in terms uh, that in conjunction with the ceremonies and rituals that were contained in the Mosaic law. So in other words, because they, they believed the promises of God, but because the promises of God were set forth in types and shadows, they tend to express their faith in the promise by using language that refers either to God's historical redemptive acts on their behalf or by alluding to some aspects of the physical ceremonies and rituals that were part of the Mosaic law, which is why you will often hear them speak of the horn of salvation. You will hear them re refer to various elements of the rituals or the ceremonies of the, the uh, Old Testament or the Mosaic law. So that's why they speak the way they do about their faith. But when they talk about righteousness, when they talk about God's steadfast love, they are looking at all of the things in the ceremony, all of the rituals, and understanding that through these things God is conveying his, his blessings and his in fulfilling his promise. Now, on the other hand, 
New Testament saints. New Testament saints, especially as we see it in the epistles, New Testament saints sets forth the gospel, not usually in physical terms, but in doctrinal terms with the understanding that God's physical acts on our behalf are primarily centered in what God has done through Jesus. So therefore, New Testament saints tend to speak of the gospel in doctrinal terms, what God has done through the finished work of Christ, and they speak of what of God's forgiving acts, they speak of God's atoning and redeeming love, they speak of the shed blood of Christ, they speak of the physical existence of the Savior. Whereas, and, and they, they figure from there, or they reason from these physical facts, the essence of God's promise and of God's love and of God's faithfulness. So in other words, what the New Testament uh, saints have a tendency to do is interpret all of the physical acts on behalf of the saints as set forth in the Old Testament as typological of Christ's work of redemption and they extract from these physical things the, pers- the substance of Christ from the ceremonies and the rituals. Now, to again flesh it out a little more, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ is our Passover, what he is doing is reasoning from the physical ceremonies of the Passover celebration and saying in short that Christ is the substance of everything that the, the, the Passover ceremony and feast was all about. Now, uh, Paul is not saying for one moment that Christ is actually a lamb. But what, and, and by the way, when Paul says this, there is no actual lamb. They don't celebrate the sacrifice of the, the Passover anymore in the New Testament church because Christ says he is that lamb and that he is the means by which God's grace is confirmed to us. So Old Testament saints are saved by faith in the same gospel that we are saved by. But because they, uh, they, they, do, not, they do not have the, the fulfillment of it, but they still believe the promises of God. And the promises of God, as it relates to Christ, is, is set forth in types and shadows through the Mosaic law. So it's through a point of reference to historical acts and through the ceremonies. And, and when I say a point of contact or point of reference to historical acts, the big event in redemptive history for uh, the people of God in the Old Testament was God delivering the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage. That is the watershed mark, and you see it referenced in the historical psalms. You see it referenced as, you see it as the point of reference, as as the guarantee that he will do everything else that he has promised because he has delivered his people from Egyptian bondage. So the, the Egyptian exodus becomes the water that becomes the watershed by which all of the rest of God's redemptive acts are understood by the people of God. So those are my preliminary statements and the reason I make these preliminary observations is because what we're going to be looking at in our text is four basic gospel truths that are fulfilled for us in the person and work of Christ but are articulated 
from the vantage point of Old Testament saints who are surrounded by a, a reference to historical events and physical ceremony. So what I want to do next is look at four basic truths of the gospel that are the possession of every believer. I can't stress enough that if your faith is in the person and work of Christ, you get everything that he has lived for and died for. So it's none of this that I get this and then next week I have to sign up for that. It's none of this that, okay, well, I'm, I'm not complete. because No, if you have faith in Christ, then everything that is contained in the gospel promise, everything that is accomplished by Christ is yours by faith. Whether, no matter how far you are from that reality, it doesn't change the fact that it's yours. So let's look at four basic uh, truths. Uh, four basic truths of the gospel that apply to believers at all times, as we see here in the text. The first thing is, is in verse 15, he says, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Now that phrase, blessed, we know it from Psalms 1, blessed is the man, but we want to make a contrast. Blessed is, is the man in Psalms 1 who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, etc., what the writer is doing in Psalms 1 is describing not you on how to be blessed, but it's making a statement of fact that the person who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who doesn't take any, or who doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful, etc., that that person is blessed, who delights in the law of God every day of his life. Now, that's not you, so let me just take, you all, take the mystery out of it. That's not you. You are the ungodly. That's also mentioned in Psalms 1. You're the ungodly. But Jesus is the blessed man. And because your faith is in him, whatsoever he does will not prosper. He's like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. So because he saved you, his saving of you will not prosper in what he, or, or will prosper. And therefore you are connected to his good deeds. Now, you need to understand that. So, so if there's another way that, that we see blessed. Blessed is given to us. It's, it's an announcement. As we see it in the New Testament, it means blessed. Or, or the New Testament, some people have, 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 uh, have interpreted it as, as, as happy is. But that's not, that's not enough. That doesn't go far enough. But in the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are they. And what he's doing is announcing the blessed status of those to whom he has given the kingdom to. So when we see this phrase, blessed, this is not an instruction. This is not, this is not what he's telling you to do. He's, this is not an instruction on how to be blessed. This is a description of those who are. And notice the description that he gives here. Who's the blessed person or the, who are the people that are blessed the people who, and, and I can't emphasize this enough, who know the festal shout. Now, the reason I say that is because it's not uncommon for various psalms to exhort the people of God. Another translation, by the way, for festal shout is joyful noise. Anybody's translation read that way? Um, Blessed are the people who know the joyful noise. So here's one of the ways that, and, and we know that throughout the psalms, 
Psalms 95, Psalms 100, we are admonished, the people of God are exhorted and admonished to make a joyful noise to the Lord. That's what they are exhorted to do, make a joyful noise to the Lord. So, so here's the difference. In Psalms 95 and in Psalms 100, it is an exhortation for God's people to exclaim, to declare a joyful noise to the Lord. But that's not what this passage says. It doesn't say blessed is the person or the people who make a joyful noise or festal sound. But rather it says blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Now, here's why this is important. Actually, the joyful sound refers to uh, it, it's, it's a military sound. It's something that comes from the trumpet usually, and it's a, it's a sound of victory. It's a triumphant sound of victory. The emphasis here is know that sound. So it doesn't mean blessed are the people who know the sound of praise. There are two particular historical references, I think, that, that flesh out this joyful sound. One is in, um, in, in Joshua. In Joshua, we, we know that the people of God, they are about to go over across or, or defeat the city of Jericho. The Jericho is surrounded by walls. So let's look at Joshua chapter 6. We'll look at verses 10 and 11, and then we'll look at verse 20. And hold in mind that the Lord gives Joshua an unusual battle plan for defeating the city of Jericho. He tells them to march around the wall for six days. And on the seventh day, they are supposed to march around seven times. We'll look at, at Joshua chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 10 and 11, and then verse 20. Beginning in verse 10. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. Uh, so he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Okay, now let's jump over to verse 20. Uh, having done all of that, beginning in verse 20, it says, So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. So what's the significance of the festal shout? The fact that did, did shouting bring the walls down? Not at all. What it is, is the festal shout or that joyful shout was the people's response to the evident power of God exerted on their behalf. So what ends up happening in Joshua 6 is the Lord brings down the walls of Jericho so God's people cannot say at the end of the day how we did it. But they rejoice in what he did. One other place we see this very similar situation, Judges chapter 7, and we'll look at verse 2. 
verse 2 is very important to set it up. Judges chapter 7, verse 2, the story of Gideon. Okay? And, and here's what the Lord says. Gideon is going up against, you know, huge army, and he is already under man. So in Judges chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the, Midian, the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Okay? So you notice that? They are, they are already under number, under man. But God says you still have too many because somewhere along the line, after the battle, you're going to be saying your power. You're going to be talking about all of these courageous saints. And your victory is not about the courage of the saints. So now let's skip over same chapter, verses 20 through 22. Gideon, or Judges chapter, uh, chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. and They, uh, they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, uh, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shitham and toward Zerah, as far as, as far as the border of Abel Mahola by Tabith. Uh, so in other words, the people again sound the trumpets and make a great shout in the presence of the Lord's power exerted on their hands or, or exerted on their behalf. So the victory does not go to the people who shouted or blew the horns. But the shouting and the horn blowing is indicative of God's power exerted on behalf of his people. So the festal shout that, or the joyful noise. He says that blessed are the people not who shout, but who know the festal shout. And the festal shout means blessed are the people who know the experience of God's power being exerted on behalf of his people. Here's the second thing. Not only does the gospel display the saving power of God, and by the way, you, you do remember in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Okay, And, and same thing he says in Romans chapter 1. It is the power of God through salvation or for salvation for the Greek and for the Jews. So the festal power to know the festal shout is to know the power of God at work on behalf of his people. But the gospel not only displays the saving power of God on behalf of his people, it also secures the light of God's face towards his people. Blessed are the people who not only know the festal shout, but also it says, blessed are those who walk, in, uh, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Same thing that we said for the first one. 
He's not telling us how to get the light of God's face to shine. The emphasis here is the people who are blessed know what it means to have the face of the Lord shine towards them. Now for this we can see two, uh, two passages, one Old Testament, one New Testament, where it's captured first in the Aaronic benediction, the famous benediction that is given to the Lord uh, for, uh, for Aaron and his sons. So in Numbers chapter 6, Numbers chapter 6, we'll look at verses 24 through 26. And this is the blessing that Aaron was supposed to put on the people, Aaron and his son, were to announce to the people after they had offered their sacrifices. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Old Testament saints had the knowledge that God's face was shining upon them. It was, we can talk about his providential care, but it is the knowledge and, and the context for the face of the Lord shining towards his people is the reality of the fall. The reality of the fall is that God has banished fallen humanity from the presence of any sense of intimacy with him. He continues to be good to all men, but his face does not shine favorably towards all men. And so God, through the rituals and the ceremonies of the Old Testament system, Mosaic system, pointed to the fact that my face is shining upon you. It doesn't look any different. I know we're used to religious art where you see a light shining out of heaven, but the people of God didn't go into the temple and then all of a sudden a halo was over their heads or they could see the light breaking through. It was the knowledge that through blood, it was the knowledge that through the things that God has himself put in place that he would cause his face to shine favorably upon his people. When they went to war, it was the knowledge that the face of the Lord is still upon you. As they dealt with domestic situations, the face of the Lord is upon you. They say, well, how do we know? Because the Lord said so through his appointed priests. But look in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says this concerning the face of the Lord shining upon his people. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel gives to all the knowledge of God's power exerted on your behalf and the knowledge delivers to all who believe the knowledge that God's face shines upon you. Our challenge is that we don't always feel like his face is shining upon us, so therefore we have to get in line to do something to get God to look upon us favorably. But the gospel delivers the fact that God's face shines is, is shining upon you. It's not that God will. He does. But here's the third thing. Thirdly, 
we see also in the text that God gives to those that he has exerted his saving power towards, God also grants us the privilege of being able to rejoice in his name. Blessed, he says, are the people who know the festal shout uh, and uh, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. And then verse 16, who exult, which means to rejoice in your name all the day. Now, does that mean that every believer continuously rejoices in the name of the Lord? No, it doesn't. What it does mean is that the name of the Lord is permanently etched on the hearts of his people. And so we have the privilege of being able to use the Lord's name. We can call on him and he'll hear us. We are marked by his name. We get to rejoice in his name all the day long, even when we don't, because the gospel gives us the privilege of access to the name of the Most High God. Here's the fourth and final thing. The gospel not only grants us the privilege of rejoicing in the name of the Lord, but the gospel also exalts us into the righteousness of God. I love the, the, the phrasing here because it gives this idea of picking us up and making us more than what we truly are. Again, in verse 16, it says, um, uh, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. A couple of things there. One, in your righteousness. The righteousness of God. Now, the question that is raised by many commentators is what is meant by the righteousness of God? On the one hand, it could be the righteousness of God's holy character. The righteousness of God's holy character. God's personal righteousness. God's personal morality. And can we say that we are exalted, in a sense, in God's personal righteousness? Or it could mean the righteousness that God requires. Are we exalted in the righteousness that he Requires, and you can think about that for a moment. And then the third one could be the righteousness that comes by faith. We are told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. This was a key point for Luther at the time of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. What is meant by the righteousness of God? I think a good biblical answer is all three God's righteous character allows him to grant to those who are undeserving a righteousness that he requires. And he does it in a way that maintains the integrity of his character because the righteousness that he requires has actually been accomplished by another. And what God does, this is a wonderful statement about what the gospel gives to us. God exalts us in his holy, righteous character. He exalts us to the standard that he has required for all of us and he does it through the righteousness of another. And the righteousness of the other is none other than Jesus Christ. You see, every time an Old Testament saint had to offer a sacrifice of an animal, it wasn't, it wasn't the animals that were spotted. It was supposed to be a spotless animal because it was to be typological 
of the spotless son who was given up on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, what God gives us in the gospel, not for some, not for super Christians, what God gives for all of us is he exalts us in the righteousness that he has required and the righteousness that his son has accomplished and the righteousness, that, and, and he does it in a manner that is consistent with his holy, righteous character. God exalts us in his righteousness that is a gift from or in the gospel. God grants us the privilege of his name that is ours and what we discover in, the, 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 in Jesus' parable of the, of, the, of, the, uh, of the prodigal son is that even when we wallow in the pig pen, he doesn't take his name back. And even when we mess up like David, he doesn't, he doesn't, know, he doesn't drop him down a rank so that he's no longer covered by that righteousness. You see, brothers and sisters, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, what you don't see is a hall of fame. I don't care what anyone says. Hebrews 11 is not a hall of fame other than the hall of fame of God's grace. You see a woman who, when God says that I'm going to bless you with the child, she laughed at him. And he blessed her anyways. We see a man that, that believed God and it was credit to him for righteousness, but yet when he was faced in, with trouble, he gave his wife up and, and said and denied that she was even his wife. We see a man that, that was so puffed up that he started counting and, and taking a census when the Lord had already told him all was his. What we see is a man who becomes angry and strikes a rock. But God, exalts us with his righteousness. That's what he gives to all of us. And to all of them, they are still called by the name of God. David, whatever he did wrong, he's still named as a child of God. Because God has legally adopted us. And he never gives us back. And those that he has given the privilege of his name, he has also made us to know that it is his power and all we are are but cheerleaders on the sideline. Let me give you three applications of these truths. One, these four gospel benefits are both the resources and the motivation for our pursuit of holiness. What God gives us in the gospel, the fact that he allows us to know the festal shout, to know that it is his power that is exerted on our behalf. It is our motivation for serving him. It is not only our motivation, but it's also our resource for, so, for serving him and, and to pursue the things that he has called us to because it is his power at work in us. Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians, that it is God who is at work in you, causing you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. These four gospel benefits, the fact that he has given us his name and he'll never take it back, the fact that he has exalted us in his righteousness is exactly the thing that we need to be motivated so that we serve God, not so that he will give us the privilege of his name, 
God, we don't, we don't try to, we don't put to, to death the deeds of the flesh so that at the end of it, he'll call us his children. But brothers and sisters, far to the contrary, we serve God and we do battle with the flesh because he's given us his name. It is because we know that we are like the, like the children of Israel at the wall of Jericho. We have no power to bring it down. But we can shout as he does it. We serve him and we fight sin, flesh, and the devil. Not so that we can become righteous, but it is because he has given us the gift of his righteousness. But here's the second application of this, these benefits are also our comfort and our consolation in our weaknesses and in our failures. Now someone may be present right now that you know that your, your pattern of thought, your behavior is inconsistent with who you are. But here's what we need to know is that it is God who has exalted you, it is God who has put his name on you. And it's God's power at work on your behalf. And the good news of the gospel is that I'm never good enough. And my name is always soiled. But in his name, I can rejoice. My righteousness always falls short of the mark. And I don't have the power to do the things that need to be done. But as Paul learns in 2 Corinthians when he prayed three times for the thorn to be removed from his flesh. And Jesus spoke to him and says, no, I'm not going to take it out. I'm going to leave it there. Because in your weakness, my power is manifest. Brothers and sisters, we, even in our times of trial and in our times of failure, you're no less a child of God. And his righteousness is no less credited to you. And his power is no less at your disposal. Because God has loved you with an everlasting love. But here's a third and final point of application. It's for this reason. It is for this reason that this is both the resource and the motivation for our serving. It is for this reason because it is the comfort and consolation in our trials and in our failures that we always need to be reminded that the God of the universe has co-opted his power on our behalf. It is his power that brings down the walls of Jericho. It is his power that has overcome the kingdom of darkness on our behalf. We need to be reminded of it because every time we do something good, we start thinking about our power. We need to be reminded that we are exalted in his righteousness because we get too puffed up when we accidentally do something kind of right. We start looking at others as if they are somehow less than us and we more than them. The righteousness that allows us to stand before thrice holy God without fear 
of condemnation is the righteousness that is not our own, but it has been given to us and we embrace it by faith. We need to be reminded of this because sometimes, and not just every now and then, not just once a month, we need to be reminded of it because we live in the flesh and it doesn't take much for us to forget. You know, I think about Peter when he was, when the Lord called him and, and when, when well, the Lord was, Peter and the disciples were in a boat and, and, and the waters got rough and, and they saw Jesus walking on the water and Peter didn't believe it and the Lord says, oh, it's me, come on. He said, well, then let me come to you and Jesus says, come on. And Peter starts walking and then he noticed the winds and the waves and the, what, what, what surprises me is not that he began to go down but the fact that he began to drown. Because in that split second, Peter being a fisherman, now I'm not a fisherman, but I have fish. And Theo, I'm going to trust you on this one. Fishermen who get in boats ought to know how to swim. And I'm trusting that Peter knew how to swim. But in that moment, when he began to look at the winds and the waves and realize that he's doing something that is unusual, which is walking on the water instead of swimming, he began to sink. And it doesn't take many storms or that strong of a wind for us to start to forget what we already know. All it takes is, is, is you, you, can, might, you might leave here puffed up feeling good about God's love for you and the love of God radiating from you and then you cross 117th. <laughs> or get in your car and the, ax, and the air conditioning doesn't work. Or find out that your loved one didn't do what they said they were going to do. Get in your car and get a call from a, a wayward child, still wayward, and see how much you feel like God's name is being rejoiced in you. See how, feel, how, how, how exalted you feel in righteousness. See how much you hear the shout, the festal shout of God's confirming God's power at work on your behalf. We need to be reminded of this and rehearsed in this because what God gives us in the gospel is not natural to us and it doesn't take much for us to start reasoning from the flesh. Here's what I love about the benediction that, that, that Aaron, we just read from Aaron. The very next verse, the Lord says, and by this you shall put my name on these people. And every time we come into his presence to have the word of God open to us and have the gospel declared to us, here's what he's doing. He's reestablishing, reaffirming Reannouncing his name in you. Hard headed as you are, 
he is reaffirming to you that his righteousness is greater than your sins. He's reaffirming to you that all of the power of heaven is on your side because he has given us this in the promise of his son. Four gospel benefits that we always need and we always need to be reminded of And it's the only thing that is an incentive as well as a resource to say no to Satan. It is our only comfort in times of trial. And brothers and sisters, I pray that we never get so filled with the Holy Spirit that we never become so preoccupied with church doing that we forget that we are exalted In his righteousness, we are exalting in his name. And he is with us. And his power is on our behalf. Amen.